In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. I have a difficult task in front of me this morning for two reasons. First, I have to preach a sermon on the Lord's Sermon, Jesus' own Sermon on the Mount. What more can I possibly say? He is the chief preacher. He is the Lord. He is the Word made flesh who speaks as the light and life of men. I say, Amen to his sermon. Trying to preach a sermon on his sermon, it's like when I'm in the backyard with my son playing baseball. And to build momentum, I say, bottom of the ninth, bases loaded, two out, and Yadier Molina's up to bat. And I swing and I send the ball all but 10 feet. My swing isn't anything like Yadi's. My body is only slightly less muscular. My neck and composure for the limelight completely untested. And in every way, I am no Yadier Molina. The only thing that's the same in that whole scenario is that it's the same baseball. The second reason why I have my work cut out for me this morning is that the baseball I have been given to put in play today is one I know as your pastor will be hard for you to hear. But by the end of the sermon, you must judge for yourself according to God's holy word and ask, do I believe this or do I reject it? And there's a big difference between the two. With that in mind, we hear these words from the Gospel of Matthew. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Matthew gives us no small detail concerning how the Lord Jesus himself prepares for his sermon. He ascends the mountain, he sits down. He gathers his disciples to himself, and he opens his mouth, and he teaches. Christ himself establishes the very way, the pattern, and the office in which every good preacher must follow whom he sends to preach a sermon. First, a pastor must take his place. And second, a pastor must open his mouth and teach. First, a pastor must take his place. Before Jesus preaches this sermon, he first ascends the mountain and he sits down. He takes his place as the preacher with both the ability and the responsibility to preach. He doesn't come to this place by his own calling, nor does he exalt himself to this office, but he's called by God, sent by God, exalted by God and placed there by God alone. Therefore, Jesus is able to faithfully say, 
I speak to you not because of my own purposes or my own desires, but I speak to you because it is my office entrusted to me from above. By his obedience to the Father who leads him to the mountain to teach and to preach, to suffer and to die for the sins of the world, we therefore owe him our ears, our hearts, our attentiveness, our trust, our devotion, and our obedience in every way, no matter what it may cost us. When Jesus ascends the mountain and sits down, he's taking his rightful place as your preacher and teacher. The teacher sat to teach in his day. Jesus shows us this when in the Gospel of Luke, when he goes to the synagogue, he reads the scroll of Isaiah, and then he sat down and began to teach, it says. The early church continued this practice. The bishop would always teach sitting in a chair, the throne, they called it, and the people who received his teaching would stand around him. But today, in the church, it's the opposite. The teacher stands, and the people who receive his teaching sit. But let me be the first to say that I would gladly welcome a change back to the glory days. A pastor must take his place to preach. But how does a man in the Lutheran church take such a place? What gives him the right to ascend the mountain of God and sit in the office of what Hebrews 13.17 calls the chief speaking one? Obey your chief speaking ones and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. You may wonder why this particular pastor in this particular place gets to do that. Why not someone else? And why not you? Well, this office is bestowed upon the man whom Christ himself has placed. The man sent by God himself to speak to you must be placed in the office by Christ. It is God who sends an ambassador for Christ's sake to you, through whom God continually makes his appeal to you through him, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Or as the divine call document from this church says on my wall, We pray God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has moved us to extend our call to you, to convince you by his Holy Spirit that it comes from him. The call to be a pastor is not from man, nor can any man exalt himself to this office in the church or claim it for himself. The call alone comes from God, and a pastor is put in place where Christ has called him through his church. And so therefore the pastor in Christ's stead and by his command dares by the grace and help of God to ascend the mountain and take his place and sit in the office Christ instituted in order to gather the Lord's disciples, to open his mouth and to teach them.
and the people receive his teaching, humbly listening to him, believing that when he speaks, they are not mere words of man, but the very words of God. But in a fallen world, this beautiful arrangement of God is not so easily carried out. As St. Paul writes, having begun in the spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? The flesh does not want a pastor. The flesh wants to drive away its pastor. The flesh wants to be its own shepherd. Or even worse, to exalt oneself as the pastor in a place where he has no official call from the church. And your flesh and pride, it is stirred every time your pastor teaches, every time your pastor preaches, every time your pastor administers the mysteries of God according to Christ's institution and command, because when he does, it falls so far short. His swing isn't right. It's not the same. The paralyzed don't pick up their mats and walk home when he preaches. You don't see thousands running in for the bread of life yearning to be fed at this altar when he preaches. I am certainly no different than any other pastor who has ever filled this pulpit and that I fall so far short of what Christ demands, what his beloved bride deserves. But Jesus has sent me at this time to this place with the same word, the same baseball, the same law and gospel which he spoke, and the same sacraments which he instituted himself so that I may open my mouth and teach you. And this is the most difficult task of the preacher because the sinful flesh does not want to be taught by God. But a pastor who takes his place must open his mouth and teach without fear of man. A pastor must not be silent or keep his mouth shut, for the flock's soul depends on the word placed in his mouth to speak to them. He must be ready to teach and to preach the word, in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Second Timothy 4, 2-4. And as St. Paul writes in Romans 10, 13 through 15, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. What is this good news? 
Martin Luther summarized it beautifully for us in the small catechism. The good news stretches over and throughout and within each of the six chief parts of the Christian faith, all of which a pastor must open his mouth and teach. The Ten Commandments, the Law, given to us in the Scriptures, the Apostles' Creed, the Gospel, the salvation won for us through the death, resurrection, ascension, and the return of Christ, revealed to us in the Scriptures, the Lord's Prayer, and the necessity of prayer in the Christian life, given to us in the Scriptures, the sacrament of holy baptism, given to us in the Scriptures, the office of the keys, handed down to us in the Scriptures, and the sacrament of the altar, given to us in the Scriptures. The great 18th century Lutheran exegete, Johann Albrecht Bengel, famously connected the church's health to its attentiveness to Scripture. Scripture is the fountain of the church. The church is the guardian of Scripture. When the church is in strong health, the light of Scripture shines bright. But when the church is sick, Scripture is corroded by neglect. And thus it happens that the outward form of Scripture and that of the church usually seem to simultaneously exhibit health or sickness. And as a rule, the way which Scripture is treated is an exact correspondence with the condition of the church. Everything the Lutheran Church teaches, everything a pastor is sent by Christ to open his mouth and teach, it has one divine source, the sacred scriptures. And it is to this light, the light of the scriptures, shining in a dark place that we would be wise to be attentive to. The whole counsel of God, the fullness of his truth, it's revealed to us in the sacred scriptures, St. Paul summarizes in one sentence. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Christ crucified encompasses all of scripture. It encompasses all of the church's teaching and it is the very beauty and source of the good news so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. The teaching of the Lutheran Church, embraced by and large throughout the whole church across time and space, is that we are justified by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this teaching of justification shines throughout all the teaching of the church, the teaching of Christ, the teaching of the scriptures. Therefore, Christ puts a pastor in the office to ascend the mountain, and to open his mouth, and to teach his word concerning the law, the gospel, and prayer, and baptism, and the office of the keys, and the Lord's Supper. Christ crucified is the golden thread that runs throughout all of them. All the teaching matters, because all the teaching was given to us by Christ, given to us in the scriptures, handed down to us in the church. And the teaching of the church, the teaching of Christ, the teaching of the scriptures concerning the office of the keys, in particular, warrants your focus and your careful attention at this time. It is the fifth chief part of Luther's small catechism. 
drawn from the scriptures. The office of the keys is that special authority that pastors have been given by Christ to forgive sins and to withhold forgiveness of sins. It's like a key that locks and unlocks the door. Where has Christ said in the scriptures that pastors have the authority to withhold forgiveness? John chapter 20, verses 22 and 23. Jesus breathes on his disciples, his first pastors that he sends out to care for his church. He breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Then what locks the door? What sin can a pastor not forgive? Well, it's not any particular sin. It's only the sin that is not repented of. Impenitence. The prideful and boastful and arrogant and haughty spirit that breaks God's law, but refuses to repent. Well, then the door is locked and forgiveness is withheld. If you have Luther's small catechism nearby in your home or a hymnal, I invite you to pause this and go and grab it and then come back. Open up to page 326 in your hymnal, or if you have Luther's small catechism, open to the fifth chief part of the Christian faith. And we're going to read together the questions and answers to hear the teaching of this church, the teaching of Christ, the teaching of the sacred scriptures. What is confession? Confession has two parts. First, that we confess our sins, and second, that we receive absolution, that is, forgiveness, from the pastor as from God himself, not doubting, but firmly believing that by it our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. What sins should we confess? Before God, we should plead guilty of all sins, even those we are not aware of, as we do in the Lord's Prayer. But before the pastor, we should confess only those sins which we know and feel in our hearts. Which are these? Consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Are you a father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker? Have you been disobedient, unfaithful, or lazy? Have you been hot-tempered, rude, or quarrelsome? Have you hurt someone by your words or deeds? Have you stolen, been negligent, wasted anything, or done any harm? What is the office of the keys? The office of the keys is that special authority which Christ has given to his church on earth to forgive the sins of repentant sinners but to withhold forgiveness from the unrepentant as long as they do not repent. Where is this written? This is what St. John the Evangelist writes in chapter 20. 
the Lord Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. What do you believe according to these words? I believe that when the called ministers of Christ deal with us by his divine command, in particular, when they exclude openly unrepentant sinners from the Christian congregation and absolve those who repent of their sins and want to do better, this is just as valid and certain, even in heaven, as if Christ our dear Lord dealt with us himself. I know this teaching is a hard one. Nevertheless, it is what Christ has spoken. If you forgive the sins of any, it is forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Pray for me, dear saints, that I may stand firm on Christ's word to call unrepentant sinners, yes, even you, to repent, and that I would be even quicker to announce forgiveness to those who are poor in spirit confess their sins unto God their Father. For if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's like this. If someone were to steal something from a store, even a small thing, and they came to me and they said, Pastor, I stole a piece of gum. And I said, well, God doesn't want you to do that. And they said, I don't care. They deserved it. It was lying on the floor anyways. They don't even know about it. And they began to downplay their sin and even boast in it? Well, then the door is locked on them, and God's forgiveness is withheld, and I must tell them plainly, repent, or you will suffer the consequences of meeting your Lord on the last day with that one little sin still on your back. And do you not know that even one sin separates you eternally from the Father? You do not want to meet Jesus with this sin still on you. Repent. While on the other hand, say someone commits a grave sin, and in a fit of anger, they murder their neighbor in cold blood. And they came to me and they said, Pastor, I killed someone. And I said, God doesn't want you to do that. And they said, I know, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Well, then the door is unlocked and forgiveness is freely given. And I must tell them plainly in Christ's stead, I forgive you of this sin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit so that their soul might truly rest and rejoice in Christ's perfect forgiveness one for them on that cross, knowing that their sin is certainly removed from them as far as the east is from the west. 
and that Christ himself remembers this sin no longer. Therefore, dear saints, the Lord has ascended the mountain. He's gathered you to himself. He's opened his mouth and taught you his word. The question is, do you receive his teaching or do you reject him? Amen. And may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.